scripture reading this morning will be in Acts chapter 15. We're going to be looking at the first six verses of Acts 15. Can we all stand together for the reading of God's Word? I'll read the first verse, ask that you join with me on the second, and we'll continue every other verse. Acts 15, looking at verses 1 through 6. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem... They were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. Father, we pray that you would add your blessing to the reading of your word. Uh, Help us to learn and grow from this text. I pray that each of us would grow in our understanding of the grace of God and our salvation, of of the fact that we are justified by faith and not by works. pray that you just uh, drill these truths deep down into our hearts. Help us to really absorb uh, the material here in Acts chapter 15. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. may be seated. Well, we are continuing our study through the book of Acts, and I feel like I keep saying this, but once again, we're at one of those key chapters in the book. Uh, Acts 15 is often referred to as the Jerusalem Council, uh, really the first church council where the elders and the apostles, the leadership of Christianity came together uh, to hammer out a, a controversy that had come up in the life of the church. And they had to meet, and and they debated, and they heard both sides and and discussed this, and eventually came to a conclusion. We're going to look at this uh, text over the course of, I think, two weeks. So this week will be really uh, introductory. We're going to talk about the controversy itself and uh, dive deep into the book of Galatians, which is Paul's letter uh, written to address this particular subject. Then next week, we'll come back to Acts 15 and study the council itself, how they discussed and how they came to a conclusion there. Uh, But I thought it would be helpful for you just to take the first week here to discuss the controversy so that when we get to the actual debate and meeting next time, uh, hopefully you'll be able to follow it and see what's happening there. I'm also hoping that by doing this today, uh, you'll have a better understanding of the book of Galatians and where it fits in the New Testament. A lot of times we read the New Testament books as separate from each other. We don't really map them onto each other. And so I think this might help. Uh, understand the book of Galatians as it fits into the the timeline of the book of Acts. So today might feel like a really long introduction, and the sermon will be next week. Uh, So bear with me there. Beginning with verse 1 of Acts 15, we're going to look just at these first few verses. Uh, Verse 1 introduces us to the controversy. It says, some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, so they're teaching in the churches, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, You cannot be saved. So there's a group of people coming from the Jerusalem church that has heard of these new Gentile converts, non-Jews being saved and added to the church, and they're going around teaching that these Gentiles had to be circumcised in order to be a part of the church. 
Uh, This group is often called the Judaizers or the circumcision party. You'll see those terms throughout the New Testament. That's what these people are. And basically their teaching is that only Jews can be Christians. And so if you want to be a Christian and have your sins forgiven, you need to become a Jew first. That is the teaching that ends up being debated throughout the chapter of Acts 15. Uh, Is Christianity a continuation of Judaism, or does Christianity replace and even expand beyond Judaism? That's the question of the council. Right at the center of this debate were Paul and Barnabas, as verse 2 says. After Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So Paul and Barnabas end up being sent to Jerusalem as spokesmen of the church at Antioch, uh, and it was their position that Gentiles could be saved without being circumcised. Uh, They could become Christians just as they are. And of course, they knew this to be true experientially as they just came back from this uh, month, maybe maybe year-long church planting trip where they had witnessed many Gentiles uh, be saved and be filled with the Spirit. And so verse 3 says, Uh, being sent on their way by the church, so they're headed down to Jerusalem to discuss this issue. They pass through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. So all along their trip down to Jerusalem, Paul and Barnabas are retelling what had happened in their first missionary journey. Verse 4, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So after Paul and Barnabas have told them about these new churches that they'd established throughout Galatia, uh, the Gentile converts to the faith, they say, great, we're happy about that, but you need to go back and tell them all that they need to be circumcised and they need to keep the law of Moses and live as Jews. You need to go back and and tell them they need to eat kosher. They need to wear a yarmulke, all of that that goes along with Judaism. They need to live as Jews. Verse 6, the apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And then what follows from there is the council where the apostles and elders discuss and they lay out their case. Basically, uh, Paul and Peter and James end up being the main spokesmen uh, that hammer this out. And again, that's all we're going to cover of Acts 15 today. Uh, We're going to save the council itself for next week. For now, I want us to take a step back and talk about what's happened since the end of the last chapter. At the start of Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas were in the city of Antioch of Syria. They were teaching uh, and leading the church there. And God spoke to them and called Paul and Barnabas to leave Antioch and establish churches in new places. This was the first missionary journey. Uh, You remember, they sailed from Antioch to the island of Cyprus. They preached their way across it. Then they head up here to Galatia, and they go to Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derbe, and then they go kind of back uh, through those towns, ordaining elders in the churches that they had established and so forth. And so these are all the churches. Those cities are all in the region known as Galatia. So now there's churches established by Paul and Barnabas throughout Galatia. And then as we saw last week, uh, Paul and Barnabas head back home to Antioch of Syria, uh, where they had, they had started from. The chapter ends with these words. From there, they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. So they're, they're done with this missionary journey. They go back home to Antioch. 
When they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Now, verse 28 doesn't tell us exactly uh, how long this period of time was, uh, perhaps years. Uh, But during this time in verse 28, when Paul and Barnabas are back at Antioch again, this teaching about the Gentiles needing to become Jews in order to be saved began to spread throughout Galatia to all of those churches that Paul and Barnabas had just established. And this leads to the book of Galatians. Uh, Galatians is Paul's letter to those churches. It was written right here in Acts 14, right before Acts 15. So right in that verse 28 where they're remaining no little time with the disciples, uh, while they're back in Antioch during this period of time, Paul hears a report of what's happening to these new churches that he had uh, started in Galatia. And so he writes a letter and sends it to those churches. And here's what Paul says to them. Uh, Here's the introduction to the book of Galatians. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. All And all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. So he's writing to the churches in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra and Derbe, those churches he had just started. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and who want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you, a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Paul is ticked off. Uh, You can just see that right from the start of Galatians. He's mad. He says to these new churches that he had just started, I can't believe how quickly you have been deceived into believing a false gospel. And he's referring to this very controversy about having to become a Jew, having to keep the law in order to be saved. Paul says that's a distortion of the truth. That is a false gospel. And if anyone comes to you telling you that you need to be circumcised and you need to keep the Mosaic law in order to earn your salvation, let him be cursed. Strong language from the Apostle Paul, because this is a serious issue. This teaching is corrupting these new churches that Paul had risked his life to start. Now they were abandoning the gospel of Jesus for this false gospel of keeping the law in order to be saved. He goes on in verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So he goes on from there to tell of his conversion to Christianity, how Jesus appeared to him. And basically he's saying, I didn't come up with this message that I preached to you. I got this directly from Jesus. And so Paul is very zealous to protect the gospel of grace. Uh, He explains in chapter 2 that he even had to correct the apostle Peter and Barnabas uh, on this. Verse 11 of chapter 2, Paul says, When Cephas, that's the Aramaic uh, version of the name Peter, so when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, 
because he stood condemned. So Paul rebuked Peter, uh, not because Peter was preaching a false gospel. He wasn't part of that uh, teaching that you need to be circumcised and keep the law in order to be saved. But he was apparently intimidated by that group. Uh, Paul explains what happened in verse 12. For certain men, uh, uh, before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. So Peter was associating with the Gentile converts to Christ. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So he had no issue with Gentile Christians. He recognized they were his brothers in Christ, and he accepted that. But then when the circumcision party, the Judaizers, came into town, all of a sudden, Peter wouldn't eat with them. He wouldn't associate with them. Verse 13, And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So all the Jews in this church in Antioch started uh, behaving this way too, giving the cold shoulder to their Gentile brothers and acting like they couldn't associate with them because they were Jews. Verse 14, But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. And this is the main argument of the book of Galatians. No one is justified by works of the law. In other words, no matter how hard you try, you cannot earn forgiveness of sins. Eternal life is not something you can work for. It is given as a gift by faith in Christ. And in the rest of the book of Galatians, Paul is giving one argument after another in support of that main point. Uh, that salvation is not something you earn by keeping the law. It is to be received by faith only. That's the only way to be saved. Here's the first argument he makes in verse 21. Paul says that if you could earn salvation by keeping the law, if that's how we're saved, then Jesus' death means nothing. Verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. The death of Christ as we know, was a sacrifice for sins. Jesus died in our place on the cross so that we could be forgiven. If we earn salvation by our works, then why did Jesus have to die? If you could do enough good things to outweigh your bad works, why the cross? What's the point? Verse 1 of chapter 3, Paul continues, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed and crucified. Let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So the next argument he makes is this. You should know that you're saved without keeping the law because you received the Holy Spirit as Gentiles. Uh, when you first came to Christ uh, through faith and you were saved, the Holy Spirit filled you at that moment. Presumably they were, they were speaking in tongues and things like that. That's um, characteristic throughout the book of Acts when the Spirit first comes and so he says, you received the Spirit. You know that the Spirit came on you in that moment. And you weren't circumcised. You weren't Jews. You weren't keeping the law then. God sealed you with his Spirit while you were still Gentiles. And so uh, you, that should be all the evidence you need, that God accepts you as you are. You don't need to become a Jew to be acceptable to God. Then Paul makes an argument from the Old Testament, verse 8. 
Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. I've said before, the plan and purpose of God was never restricted to the Jewish people. And this is what the early church had to come to grips with. Jesus wasn't just Israel's savior. He came to save the world from sin. Jesus did not come merely to rule over Israel in Jerusalem. He came to rule all nations of the world. And so this promise to Abraham all the way back in Genesis made the point clear. And the point that, <clears throat> the point is this. God is going to bless all nations through a descendant of Abraham. And so Paul takes that and makes this argument. If God is going to bless all nations, that means he isn't trying to make everyone into one nation. He's not trying to make everyone a Jew. We're not all supposed to become a part of the Jewish people and then receive the blessing of Abraham. No, God wants the blessing to extend to people from every nation. Next argument Paul makes is that circumcision isn't enough. If you're going to try to keep the law as a means of justification, you would need to keep it perfectly. Verse 10, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. By the way, whenever you see those quotation marks in Galatians, uh, Paul is quoting the Old Testament. And so he's making the point here that no one can ever keep the law perfectly. Therefore, nobody could possibly be justified or saved by law keeping. We need Christ's sacrifice on our behalf in order to be saved. And that's what he goes on to say in verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So we're, we're under a curse by the law because all of us have broken the law, right? Nobody keeps God's commandments perfectly. We're all sinners. And so the only way that we can be redeemed and saved is if someone else takes the punishment on himself. And that's what Jesus did. Jesus became a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, because he died in our place, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So there Paul has laid out the answer to the dispute. These Judaizers who are promoting this idea that Gentiles need to become Jews in order to be saved, they are not only teaching doctrinal error, it's a serious error. It strikes at the very heart of Christianity. This teaching makes the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross meaningless. It places an impossible burden on the people of keeping the law perfectly. It is a false gospel. And then Paul goes on to say, in addition to all of that, this teaching will destroy the unity of the church. If you're trying to make all of the Gentiles live as Jews in order to be saved, you're splitting the church along racial lines. But Jesus died to bring us all together as one body. Uh, verse 26, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This false teaching strikes at the core of the gospel and at the heart of the unity and fellowship of the church. And so Paul fought it ferociously. And he especially fought it in these Galatian churches. Verse 11, we see a glimpse into the heart of Paul and his motivation 
He says to these churches of Galatia, I am afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. Again, in verse 19, my little children, for whom I am in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Paul is grieved about this. His anger is fueled by love. He's angry at the wolves who are coming after the sheep. Uh, You might call this mama bear anger. The Judaizers have come after these churches that Paul had labored to establish. Uh, He had just left them perhaps months, maybe a couple of years prior. He had fasted and prayed with them and commended them to the grace of God. And now a short while later, he hears that they have turned aside into this false teaching. Toward the end of the book, Paul summarizes all of his arguments that we've seen throughout the First several chapters, Galatians 5, beginning with verse 1, he kind of crams it all together in a few verses. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from grace. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. And then verse 6, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. It's meaningless, it's irrelevant, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? At the end of the chapter, Paul gives one major clarification. This will be the last section of Galatians we look at. He gives a major clarification that I think will be very important for us this week and next week as we're talking about this subject. He has stressed throughout the book of Galatians that salvation is by faith, not by works. And it's crucial to recognize that the works Paul is talking about here are the works of the Old Testament law. Some have taken Paul's words on this subject to mean salvation is merely a matter of believing the facts of the gospel that you don't need to repent, uh, that all you have to do to be saved is believe Jesus died on the cross. You don't have to yield your life to him, uh, repent of your sins, none of that. Just believe the facts of the gospel and you'll be saved. That is not what Paul is saying. That's not even the subject that Paul is addressing. He is specifically talking to Gentile believers who have been told they needed to be circumcised and they needed to keep the Old Testament law and live as Jews in order to be saved. That's the teaching that Paul is addressing. And so after spending all of that time rebuking the Christians for trying to abide by the Old Testament law, Paul turns right around in chapter 5, toward the end of the book here, and he says, if you are saved, there will be a dramatic transformation in the way that you live. Verse 16, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So he distinguishes right there between being under the law, uh, trying to earn favor with God by observing and obeying the Old Testament commands, versus being led by the Spirit. That's a totally different thing, he says. So don't take Paul's statements about works in Galatians to mean that Paul is saying we don't need to worry about how we live our lives. No, Paul makes clear that Christians are to be marked by a transformed life. Verse 19, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, 
enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So that is the lifestyle of unsaved people in those verses. The people who live in that way are not Christians. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. So don't take anything that Paul is saying here as though he's somehow saying, it doesn't matter how you live. Uh, that, that is not the point of Galatians. And then verse 22, he contrasts the lifestyle of the unsaved with the lifestyle of the saved. Verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus, those who are Christians, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So works are a good thing. Living a holy life is a good thing. Paul is preaching against keeping the Old Testament law as Christians, observing the Sabbath, getting circumcised, eating kosher, all of those things that characterize the Jewish people. But being loving and kind and self-controlled, those are all good things. Not only good, they're essential. Those are the fruit of the Spirit, the evidence that you have the Holy Spirit living in you. That's the fruit of salvation, but it's not the root of salvation. Good works in a transformed life are the evidence that the Spirit of God is in you, not the way in which you earn salvation. And this brings me to the perfect opportunity to quote for you uh, one of my favorite sections in the Institutes of Elenctic Theology by Francis Turretin, written a few hundred years ago. Uh, I'll read through this section, and then we'll go back and explain what he's saying here, because although it's very good, it's also very confusing when you first read it. Turretin writes, Works can be considered in three ways, either with reference to justification or sanctification or glorification. They are related to justification, not antecedently, efficiently, and meritoriously, but consequently and declaratively. They are related to sanctification constitutively because they constitute and promote it. They are related to glorification antecedently and ordinatively because they are related to it as the means to the end, yea, as the beginning to the complement because grace is glory begun and glory is grace consummated. Did you catch all of that? I didn't think so. So let's break it down. Uh, first section, works can be considered... In three ways, either with reference to justification or sanctification or glorification. So we need to start with establishing what those three terms mean. Justification, sanctification, glorification. Justification is what we typically mean when we talk about someone being saved or someone becoming a Christian. Uh, to be justified is to be declared righteous. It is the moment in time when you repent of your sins, you turn in faith to Christ your sins are forgiven, and you are justified. Sanctification is the rest of your life. It's living as a Christian, growing in your obedience to Jesus, living more and more like him. That's the process of being sanctified. If you've been saved for a while, you should be able to look back on your life and see a growth, see progress in many areas. I used to have anger issues, now I don't so much. Or maybe you used to struggle with loving others, now you've grown in that area. You used to be very impatient, now you've grown in your patience. You used to be full of pride, now you are more humble. These would all be examples of the kind of growth 
that all of us should be experiencing. That's sanctification. Last is glorification. That is the moment in time that you die or Jesus returns and you are changed. Uh, You will lose your sin nature entirely. You'll be given an immortal body to live forever in perfect obedience to Jesus. So if you are a Christian, you have been justified. That's in the past. You are being sanctified. That's in the present. And you will be glorified. That's in your future. Your sins have been forgiven. They are being overcome in your day-to-day living. And then one day they will be totally eradicated. So that's justification, sanctification, glorification. Are we clear on that? I hope. Okay. So Turretin then speaks of works, good deeds, as they relate to each of those three phases of salvation. First, he says, good works relate to justification, not antecedently, efficiently, and meritoriously, but consequently and declaratively. Now, this is huge. This is what Galatians is all about. Works are not related to justification antecedently, which means they do not come before Uh, You know, pronouns have an antecedent. That's the thing it refers back to, right? Remember English grammar. I'm going back to like sixth grade here. Uh, But antecedent, so the antecedent means it comes before. So works do not come before justification. You don't do a bunch of good things and clean up your life and then God saves you. No, you turn in faith to Christ. He saves you instantly and then he cleans you up later. So we don't earn salvation by our works. They are not efficient or meritorious. Uh, That's just saying our works do not earn or merit our salvation. Rather, they are the consequence. They are consequent and declarative of our justification. Works come after salvation. They declare outwardly that you have been saved. They're the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, we don't do good works in order to get saved. We do good works because we are saved. And the Holy Spirit is inside us, changing us, transforming our day-to-day living. Now that leads to the next point, sanctification. Turretin writes, they are, uh, speaking again of good works, they are related to sanctification constitutively because they constitute and promote it. So good works constitute and promote sanctification. Basically, he's saying that's what sanctification is, uh, growing in your obedience to Jesus. So that that part is simple enough. Then lastly, Turretin speaks of how our works relate to glorification. Good works are related to glorification antecedently and ordinatively because they are related to it as the means to the end, yea, as the beginning to the complement, because grace is glory begun and glory is grace consummated. Essentially, what he's saying there is that our works of obedience to Christ come before our glorification. And they are the means to that end. So we are slowly throughout our Christian life being transformed in our lives to live as the people that God wants us to be. And that work will be completed on the day that we're glorified. The work will be consummated. We will be finally free from all sin. So the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 is convening to settle the question of how one is saved. Do you have to earn salvation by keeping the law, or are we saved by faith apart from those works? And the answer that they arrive at, of course, is that we are saved by faith in Christ's death on the cross. You and I could never do enough to make up for our sins and to earn salvation. And that's why Jesus came and died. 
He lived a perfect life, and then he laid that life down on the cross, paying the debt that you and I owed from our lives of sin. And he calls out to each one of us to turn from our sin, to embrace the offer of forgiveness that he has provided for us. We don't earn it by our works. We never could. We simply receive it by faith. That is the gospel. Uh, The word gospel simply means good news. And the gospel is good news. It is not good advice. Imagine that you're in school and you have a very hard test coming up. Maybe it's geometry or trigonometry or something awful like that. And so you just know you're not going to do well in this test. The day comes when you have to have to take the test. You're sitting there at your desk working your way through it, and it is not going well. Uh, your brain is all foggy. You're looking at this stuff, and you're thinking, I, I, don't, I don't have a clue uh, what the answers are to these questions. And then the teacher comes over and sees that you're struggling. Here's the difference between good advice and good news. Good advice would be the teacher says to you, calm down. Remember the formulas we went over yesterday in class. Make sure you do the problem in reverse to to check your work and then then put down your final answer. That's all good advice. That will help you, maybe, do better on the test. But that's not the gospel. That's not good news. Good news would be if the teacher came over to your desk and said, let me have that test, I'll take it for you. The gospel of Jesus is not, if you clean up your life, if you do this and do that, maybe God will forgive you. No, the gospel is the good news that Jesus died in your place. He took your test and passed it with flying colors. He took your guilt on himself and erased it. You owed a mountain of debt that you could never repay, and Jesus paid it in full. You owe nothing. Your guilt is gone. Your sins are erased. That's good news. Sometimes Christians have legalistic tendencies like these Pharisees. You have to do this, you have to do that in order to be saved. You have to work certain ways, live certain ways in order to be acceptable to God. We cannot allow that attitude into the church. Anyone should be welcome to come here. Anyone is welcome to become a Christian. We don't expect people to clean up their lives before they come to Jesus. That's for Jesus to do after you're a Christian. We are saved by grace through faith, not by our works. We'll see next time how the leaders of the early church settled this very dispute at the Jerusalem Council. Let's pray.